Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, and emptiest continent on Earth. Every year, more than 400 scientists venture there to study everything from astronomy to microbiology. But they can't do it alone. It takes a small army of support staff to keep them all safe and fully operational. The Antarctic Sun podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for the National Science Foundation to maintain the research stations and vessels that support ongoing science in the harshest continent at the bottom of the planet. This episode, Dry Valley Field Camps. The McMurdo Dry Valleys are some of the most extreme deserts in the world. There are a series of valleys at the foot of the Transantarctic Mountains that, through a quirk in Antarctic climate patterns, receive almost no precipitation and remain almost totally ice-free all year round. They're only accessible by helicopter. After flying over the nearly featureless frozen Ross Sea, the helicopter navigates through the dramatic and dynamic landscape. Rocky peaks, dark, dusty valleys, and bright white glaciers pocketed by frozen pools of piercing blue ice pass by below. It looks a little forbidding. There's no green anywhere. Scientists say that between the cold and dryness of the area, it's a pretty good approximation for what the surface of the planet Mars is like. The helicopter touches down at Lake Hoare, one of the eight seasonal research and operational facilities that the National Science Foundation operates throughout the dry valleys. The facility itself is made up of a handful of permanent buildings, surrounded by a dozen or so tents for its temporary residents to sleep in. And though it might seem small, it's an important jumping-off point for researchers who are studying what makes these valleys so unique. You know, you have all these places in Antarctica that are just covered in ice, and this is kind of a rare little set of valleys where no snow and ice collects, and there's frozen lakes here and glaciers that spill down into the valleys, but no snow or ice accumulates here, so you have, like, dry soils. This is Ray Spain, the camp manager at Lake Hoare and the Taylor Dry Valley Camps. Through the long-term ecological research program, scientists have been studying every aspect of the ecosystems here for decades. They use the facilities scattered throughout the region as their base of operations. Lake Hoare is the biggest, and in many ways the center of operations for all the facilities and camps throughout the valleys. Okay, well you've got the main hut where everybody can have um, like their computer and we eat there. That's our kitchen. Anything you don't want to freeze in your tent, you can keep in there. But obviously we have a minimal amount of things here. And then there's three little labs where people can kind of stay working out of here instead of flying back and forth to town. We have a mini lab here. They can filter things. They can do simple things that keep them going. However, what makes these valleys of such interest to scientists also puts the valleys at risk. It's an area that's been cold and dry for millions of years, and only a few organisms are able to survive in this harsh environment. If we're not careful, we could accidentally disrupt the fragile ecosystem. It's a very sensitive area they've found over the years. There's lots of microorganisms living in the lakes and in the soils and even up on the glaciers. But it's also a desert environment. It has like a very short window of opportunity with warm weather and things happening. Consequently, things that we do can alter it permanently. And that's why we have such a strict code of stewardship here. Every single activity has to be done in a way that minimizes its impact on the environment. Um, There's almost nothing that you can take for granted, even your trash, which has to be recycled and put in the right place and taken out of here. You don't just brush your teeth and spit the toothpaste out on the ground. Nothing goes back on the ground or on the lake. Everything has to be contained and then shipped out of here. 
Um, if the carpenters want to cut something, they can't get sawdust on the ground. So you always got to be thinking about how you're going to contain that. There's a lot of little details that you don't ordinarily think about that you do here. Not only that, but because the site is as remote as it is, some of the most basic tasks back home require hours of work. Now, that's a big reason why we keep camp managers at the various sites. Scientists can focus on their research, while the managers keep the facilities running smoothly. Everything is a process that you don't usually think about. You don't just turn things on and everything works. Here we rely on solar, so you have to watch things. Here we have to make the water, so that's like a daily ongoing chore of melting ice and making it into water. But if we're not constantly making water, then you, you can't drink ice, and you can't wash the dishes, you can't do anything. Lake Hoare is right next to the Canada Glacier, which is an enormous mass of frozen fresh water. And the trick is turning that frozen ice into liquid water. So what do you guys do for Early in the season, we look for where the glacier has calved. And we go there with, we have a little all-terrain vehicle. And then we gather what we call glacier berries, and that's just chunks of the ice. Put it on a sled and haul it over here and then haul it up the hill. But this time of the season when it gets warm, the ice near the glacier melts out, so we don't have access to the glacier berries. This is Renee Nofke, the field coordinator at Lake Hoare. We're trying to get some ice to melt for water. These are glacier berries that we brought over from the glacier earlier in the season, and a lot of them have sort of at least partially melted into the lake ice, but um, they've kind of refrozen a little bit, and hopefully I'll be able to chip out some ice and get it back over to shore safely. You take one of those chunks of ice and you put it in a big pot that's sitting on our heating stove and then it melts. And obviously you can't make ice melt faster than what it's going to melt. So that's why I say we're just constantly making sure that pot's full and when it's full then we'll put the melted water in jugs and then just keep melting ice. Melting water is of course only one of the myriad of different tasks that need to be done regularly. Well, people always ask me what a typical day is, but there are no typical days. But there are some things we have to do every day. And one of them is um, I look at the weather and pass on weather to McMurdo and the helicopter hangar. And based on what information I give them in several other sites, they decide, you know, whether they're flying. So that's important. We're always the weather observer for the Hilo Ops. Yeah, Joel, um, I don't know if you saw that email from Krista about sending a box in when you come back from Bonnie. Researchers here have to go to their work site on a helicopter. So in the morning, there might be four or five flights just getting different groups out. And then you have some time during the day where it's kind of still and you can get all your tours done. And then they all start coming back. Get back to F6, just put it behind the pilot. And when you're dealing with helicopters, your time is like you can't go off and do another project. you got to be there for them. And they'll come when they come. They're maybe hours early or it might be hours late. Ray needs to be on hand to be the helicopter's weather spotter and to help them offload incoming cargo and people once they touch down. The population can change daily because we have those helicopters coming and going and because groups will move from lake to lake or come out to town for two weeks and go back to town for two weeks. So... On a Monday, I could have 15 people, and then Tuesday, I could have six, and then on Wednesday, it could go back up to 12, and that changes daily. 
And then there's, um, of course, checking in with Mac Ops to tell them how many people are here. We're the kind of the nerve center as well for all the camps. If they move from camp to camp by walking, nobody knows but us. So I'll be giving them the names and also keeping track of people and where they're walking and when they're back. We retro all the trash out, and that means full gray water and urine barrels, uh, empty fuel drums, or we help get in full drums of fuel where they need it. And we have, like, it's not just the buildings. We have a lot of drilling operations out on the lakes that need lots of equipment. It takes a lot of work to keep a facility like this running, but the people staying here do set aside a little time for recreation. A lot of people ask us what we do for fun, which is also a really difficult one to answer. You don't have internet, or if you do, there's not much you can do on it because it's pretty slow. Um, You're just pared down to dealing with what you have here. And of course, we play a lot of games. We do do a lot of hiking recreationally. But there's just a lot of creative, silly things that we do together that are really fun and very bonding. And these relationships tend to stick around. I like the community. I like the small community here and the kind of um, fun and relationships that form from being a small community. And I like the fact that you are directly involved in helping scientists rather than three or four steps removed. The kind of logistics support offered at Lake Hoare and all of the field sites are absolutely integral to facilitating the science that goes on throughout the valleys. That's all for this edition of the Antarctic Sun podcast, and stay tuned for more. I'll be bringing you more behind-the-scenes looks at how the National Science Foundation gets science done at the bottom of the world. And check out our website at antarcticsun.usap.gov for more news and science from the frozen continent. Thanks for listening.